I'm Kevin Bachman. On this episode of Background Check Radio, I'm joined by my partner, Jason Morris of iCubed Advisors. We're recapping 2022 and looking ahead to 2023. Stick around. Welcome to our 2022 Year in Review podcast. I'm here with my iCubed Advisors partner, Jason Morris. Today on Background Check Radio, we're going to have a fast-paced conversation on a number of topics, what we saw this year, what we didn't, what surprised us, and what's in store for 2023. Jason, welcome. Thanks for having me, Kevin. What do we think? Um, you know, give, give us your, your quick overview. Um, last 12 months, what's, what's it look like for us in the screening industry? Well, I think everybody was very optimistic in the first quarter, at least, of the year. Um, things were very, very strong. Um, but looking back, that was a kind of a telltale sign of, of what happened for the rest of the year and things have kind of come to a sing halt, um, for most people in the industry. So it's, uh, with, with, uh, interest rates rising, um, and, uh, and M&A slowing down, uh, we're just kind of seeing the whole industry slow down right now. Uh, a lot of layoffs, uh, from the bigger CRAs, uh, and, and definitely some layoffs in the supply chain. So I think everybody kind of sees the writing on the wall. Um, it, it's just a matter of how quickly we come out of this next, next year. I did a poll on LinkedIn, um, this week, actually asking people, uh, what they thought and when they thought that we were going to pull out of this. And I think the overwhelming majority said Q3 of next year. Yeah, that's, you know, that's, that's really interesting. Um, you know, typically business cycles are are fairly predictable. A couple of good years, a couple average years, maybe a down year or two, and and it's just you know lather, rinse, repeat. But in the last four years, I think not only have those peaks and valleys been been much sharper. The highs are high, the lows are lower, um, but it's really condensed in a time frame. You know what I just described as normal is usually a six seven year cycle, and here we've gone down up down you know, sideways over the last 18, 24 months. And um, I think it's really, really kind of wrecked havoc on business owners and their plans. Yeah, especially depending on what their plans were. You know, if you were planning on selling your business this year or next year, you know, it's probably time to rethink that just based on multiples falling and, and those interest rates. So, yeah, I think uh, I think you're seeing a lot of company changing their tune as far as what they want to do for the next year or two. You, you, you mentioned layoffs in the space, and, and you're right. I'm seeing it as well. Our recruiting business is blowing up, um, not only with companies who are looking to hire some of the talent that's been let go through no fault of their own, but organizations that are kind of trying to, to right-size getting ready for 2023. Do, do you think that, that some of the layoffs, Jason, um, are proactive layoffs? Are they reactive or like Goldilocks? Is it, you know laying people off just at the right time? Um, I think it's a little bit of both, of all of those. And and the reason I say that, and, and I've, I've said that we've talked about this a lot over the years, you know, the great predictor for, for employee growth has always been, you know, the ADP report or, or something coming out about payroll. And one thing that background screening companies have been really good at uh, for the last, for many years, is predicting that before the payroll companies, because we see these employees or those trends happening months before somebody would actually hit a company's payroll. So I think it's reactive in a sense that background screening companies are seeing that slowdown and they've been through this enough times before the smarter ones to know how to react. Um, 
And there's others that are doing it probably because they see what others are doing. And they're just kind of thinking, seeing the writing on the wall that way. But I think you are seeing some really smart analytical companies looking at historical and looking at what's happening um, with their with the searches they're doing on a, on a per day, per quarter basis. And I also think some of the, a lot of the smarter companies are talking to their bigger clients just to see what their hiring trends are going to be or needs are going to be for the next two quarters. I, I uh, You made a real good point there where you talked about, hey, um, there, there may be an element of it where people are doing it because they see others are doing it. And, and then it kind of becomes a snowball. You know, we talk a lot on our webinars, our podcasts, when we talk to clients, um, we talk about the jolt report, we talk about hires and quits and, and open positions and, you know, where we kind of stand right now for those listening who don't follow it very closely. Uh, 11 million job openings has kind of been the average for a lot of 2022. That's that's under 10, I think a little closer to nine right now. So we're definitely seeing open positions disappear. But unemployment is still below four, Jason. The quit rate is at the same percentage, just about. It is a historically high um, quit rate. And none of us are econom- you know, economists. We just get to play it on a podcast. I mean, it 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 seems like there's a bunch of data that's contradicting itself all at once. I think a lot of it has to do, I mean, the quit, not the quit rate, the uh, the open jobs rate and, and unemployment rate, I think, and I'm not sure if the JOLT report uh, factors this in or, or not, but there's so many people that have switched from being W-2 employees to being independent contractors and, you know, working for things like the gig economy. And there's millions and millions of people working for those places. Um, you know, they're not looking for jobs because they technically, quote unquote, have a quote unquote job um, doing what they're doing. So I think things like that are affecting those numbers. And I think that the unemployment numbers and stuff like that, there's a new normal for that. I don't think we've seen what it is yet, but I think that the, the lower number is showing that that's going to be a new number soon. Yeah. And and for, you know, for those that are, that always like the juicy data points that we throw out, you know, I have, I have another one for you. Um, we've we've talked in the past, and and I always recommend that if you want to see where companies are and what they're doing, look at their open positions. The largest companies in our space, I think, are a wealth of competitive information for that. So I, I traditionally look at the five or six largest companies in our space, and I literally just count the number of open positions. I look at what they're hiring. I look at where they're hiring um, and, and kind of for what roles. So Jason, bear with me as I, I walk through this, um, earlier in the year, um, 600 kind of comes to mind, 600 open positions amongst the five or six largest positions in our, in our, um, in our industry. I'm going to put you on the spot. I'm going to ask you to guess, um, what, what do you, what do you think? What do you think six or 700 open positions five months ago is now among the largest companies in our space? You know, again, it's really hard to say because it's like something you mentioned earlier, something we're going to talk about here, the great quit. You know, I don't know how many of those positions are for growth or for just refilling. Yeah, yeah, good point. Good point. So I would say the number is probably around the same because a lot of people also just keep their positions out there because they know people like us look at it. Yeah, and they want to make yeah. sure that everybody thinks that they're growing. So yeah, well, and it's it, it's funny. It's like when when COVID when COVID hit. Um, one of the first things, and and we'll get back to the number. I promise, because I'm looking at it right on my notebook, guys. Um, for everyone listening, it, it, you know, when when COVID hit two some years ago, Jason, it's like the first thing everybody did within two weeks or so was they they took down their open positions, and like, I get that you might not make those hires. 
And I totally understand, like the world changes a lot, but man, that kind of sets off alarm bells. If, if you're, if, if I'm a salesperson, right? If I'm a salesperson, like I'm, I'm totally using that as a, as, as a hammer, um, mm-hmm. you know, Hey, you're with a company and they used to have a hundred open positions and now they're down to six. What's going on over there? Are they still the provider for you, et cetera? So that, that that's kind of how I think. But uh, and I, I would say I would say as the owner of that company, look, we're we're a great employer. We filled our all of our positions. Yeah. Everybody wants to work here. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah, right. Or um, or I'll talk on the other side of my mouth and I'll say, well, we are financially responsible and we see the writing on the wall. We've kept enough employees to keep things strong, but we want to be here for you in two years and not be bankrupt. Yeah. I, so I, I love the way you said that, right? Because a lot of times it's like you have to be able to argue both sides and that the, the yeah. strongest the strongest argument wins. Right. Um, so about six, you know, 650 open positions a couple of months ago, Jason, 196. Huh. How many of those do you think are are in the continental United States? Oh, few. 40. Very few. 40. Yep. So, you know, we started the conversation about activity in our space and open positions. You know, I, I, I talked about that change 600 to 200. What I didn't tease as I began, to, as I began um, uh, to tell that story was U.S.-based positions and overseas positions. Now, I will preface it, and, and, and Jason, we worked in, in you know, um, organizations that, that have global capabilities. I've worked with amazing people in Mumbai and not so amazing people in Minnesota. So mm-hmm. this is, this is the, 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 you know, there's no xenophobia here. It's not geographic, but like, like we often say, if you want to see what a company is doing, if you want to see what their strategy is, look at where they're hiring. And these large companies are not hiring in mass verification specialists, public record specialists. They are hiring for positions that if you didn't know the company you know, if you didn't know the company name, you would have no idea that they were a background check company yep. for the positions they're hiring for. And and I and I think that's a pretty sizable shift that we've seen in our space over the last five to seven years. Any 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 thoughts on that before we uh, you know move on to our next topic? No, I think I think that that's that's all very interesting. I think you're seeing. You know, I, I was going to bring this up a little bit later. But I can kind of tee it up now. One thing that I've heard from some decent size, you know, mid to larger mid size uh, CRAs in the, in the last two weeks um, is this, and, and I think a lot of it's because they're now a lot of these companies are being run by Silicon Valley veterans and people that really understand how to grow and, and add value to a business. Um, that they are, they've mentioned to me that they want to become independent of their suppliers and not only their, their suppliers on the crim side and the data side, but also on the technology side. So what does that mean? That means that a lot of companies are looking to re-insource everything and, and not be reliant on any third parties. So we're, we're starting to see, I'm starting to see some decent sized company build up their own public records teams and having people, you know, go, you know, work just for them or doing, you know, building their own scraping technologies. Um, And then in the same breath, we're also seeing those same companies starting to, and I never thought this was going to happen. And I've said it, I've been completely wrong, starting to look to build their own software. They're building value as CRAs. It's 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 a great point, right? And and that last one for for the listeners, I think, is is a real key takeaway. You know, Jason and I were talking to a newcomer to our space, 
earlier in the week looking to make an investment. And you know, we're talking about the typical attributes of, of CRAs. Um, if you are a faithful listener to the podcast, um, you hear me talk about um, Batchelor grandfather over 30 years. Today's small business owner is, uh, you know, again, I'm stereotyping a bit here. Um, 30 years ago, they came out of law enforcement or criminal justice or just had an idea, but they weren't entrepreneurs. They weren't business people. They weren't technologically sophisticated. They just had an idea. They saw an emerging industry and they got into it. Um, that is not today's new entrant, Jason, right? We've we've talked about this in the past and you made a really good point and I'll, uh, I won't put you on the spot. I'll just kind of paraphrase what you had said. You know, when when we had this conversation, we we're talking about technology, just like you said now, a couple of days ago, you were kind of of the mindset that, you know, of the 400 companies that we're actively tracking, 300 plus have no real competitive differentiation. It's the same technology. They buy products from the same people. Their reports look exactly the same. You can line them all up and there's really there's really no difference. And, and like yep. you mentioned a second ago. You know, now other other companies, sharper companies are saying, hey, how do we create more of that value inside of our own businesses? Yep. Yep. And it's again, I never thought I would see that. I've, I've been, you know, I've, we've had our build versus buy conversations and webinars and everything. And, and, and I see both sides of it, but I would never start a CRA right now and build my own software because you have something that already exists. So why would you reinvent it? But that's what these some of these companies are doing to build value. Well, and and that that's a nice segue to. As we look, you know, backward over the last 12 months, have we seen technological innovation amongst the third-party platform providers? Have we seen new entrants in the space, um, you know, of, of any significance? And, and I think the answer is no. Not really. I mean, identity has been around now for a couple of years. No, not, I'm sorry, not more. products, not, not products, not products, uh, but just the software. Yeah, no, I no, nothing. There's there's really there's, there's nobody again, there's nobody innovating out here in the space. And, and and that's what, you know, when we when we think of the market and and um it's probably a word we're going to use a couple times especially when we talk about products, you know, the bifurcation of of the market. Um you know, more and more of the industry and the screening dollars are going toward those companies with their own software. That's not an argument in and of itself to go build your own software. It's just the realization that the money is flowing toward the companies that kind of have their own. And, you know, but but it's it's the 80-20 rule, right? You know, 80% of the money is going to the 20% of companies on their own platforms and 80% of the, the companies in our space are on third party platforms. And we're just not seeing a whole lot of different things. So if I'm if I'm one of them, if I'm a company on a third party platform, I, I don't know how great I feel about the future. I still feel good because again, if you're if you're a, if you're a larger Tazworks client, for instance, and, and you're doing acquisitions, then you're gonna target those Taz other Tazworks. Um, users, so it's just a different model. Um, but the guy, and, and you know, and, and it definitely can be a lot of success doing it that way. But I think these guys that are trying to build their own are looking; they're not looking, you know, at the at the lower end sales. They're looking in the yes. you know, hundreds of two hundred or three hundred million dollars of of of, uh, of M and A. So that's what they're striving for, and they don't believe they can get there on a third party. Yeah, correct. And, and, and that's a great point. You mentioned a second ago, you're like, hey, I kind of feel differently about this than I used to. Uh, this topic is one that I'm starting to feel differently about. I'm I'm not, you know, at heart, a proprietary at all costs kind of guy. I am a, 
you know, you, you have a lot of business challenges, go solve them in the order of importance. Um, and, and your platform, I do not always believe is, is at the, the top of that list. Um, yep. You know, however, you're starting to feel different because you are seeing evidence and, you know, we read, listen, learn, talk, network all day. And and that, that yep. forms our opinions, that forms our guidance to our clients. And you're starting to feel differently about, about the operational side. I'm starting to feel a little differently about the, the platform side. Um, yep. That's a surprise. I can't say 12 months ago that we would have, we would have thought that way. No, um, I would have never, never thought that companies wanted to be supplier independent, especially on the supply chain side. I mean, I, I don't know why you would want to. I do know why you'd want to. Um, I think a lot of these companies are very premature in wanting to do it. I think that when you're at 30 or 40 or $50 million in revenue, you know, there's no reason why you shouldn't, you know, use multiple vendors and, 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 and use that supply chain. When you get a little bit bigger than that, I can see companies starting to question their strategy. Um, but it's the 30 and 40 and $50 million companies that I'm talking to that are saying, yeah, we're going to, we're going to be supplier independent. How, how much of that, how, how much of that, by the way, we didn't plan on talking about this. Um, how much of that Jason is a desire to not work with somebody who is also competing with you at the same time? You know, we're seeing it's some vertical integration and part of our space are people making decisions accordingly. Part of it is, um, but part of it's just I can't build more value for my business unless I own every, you know, I own a whole completely 360 degree, you know, piece of it, and not being reliant on anybody else. It's the same thing that we always had, you know, at Employees Green IQ. Like we always had this one piece of software that ran our business that we were that if anything ever happened to them, if they got hit by a bus, we're screwed. And I think a lot of companies are getting paranoid about that. Yeah, that's 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 um that's really good observation there. Um, we started talking about we started talking about uh, product innovation, and uh, unlike technological innovation on the platform side, we we are a little more bullish. Uh, you certainly are on on product innovation. You want to share your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean the three biggest products uh, that we're seeing momentum with are identity, which we're seeing a ton of momentum with. Um, and, and especially on the, with the large CRAs with three large CRAs or five, four, five large CRAs. Um, but then we're also seeing lots of growth. Um, you know, I'm one of the owners of Fairly and, and Fairly, you know, is we're not seeing mass adoption of, of social media screening. We are seeing significant increases in, in the use in its use, um, like significant. So, I think that would probably be number two. And then on the monitoring side, I've had some great conversations with the folks over at uh, Equifax and, 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 and other third parties that are, that are doing monitoring and selling monitoring uh, uh, services. We, we're, again, we're not seeing the home run that I kind of thought we'd have by now, but we are seeing significant double digit increases in, in its use. So if, if, as long as those things continue, and I'm not sure what the growth is in the identity side, I would, I would imagine that it's over 100% because it didn't exist a couple of years ago. Um, but you're going to start seeing more and more adoption of those newer technologies. And I think the reasons are very simple. Um, you know, companies don't care as much as they used to about the five-year-old theft or the 15-year-old burglary that is on your record. They care more about their reputation, the person's ability to do it. Do, do the job and keeping their company safe from the press and, and bad, bad media and all that kind of stuff. So there's more tolerance now for the criminal records, uh, more tolerance than there's ever been. Um, so I just think that people are looking for other reasons yeah. to make sure that these people are good people to hire. Yeah. There, there's so much to unpack with, with what you just said. There are a lot of great takeaways for, for listeners. Um, you know, there, the bifurcation, there's that word again, 
um, when we think of monitoring and, and, you know, most know that I am, I'm a little more bearish on monitoring, but that's on the criminal side. You know, we think of monitoring, it's not just criminal to, to Jason's point and, and to the use of monitoring, right? The five-year-old theft, uh, does it matter? Hey, the janitor and the chief sales officer did the exact same thing. Are you taking consistent action or inconsistent action? Those are some of the things that scare buyers away. And I think are, are you know, kind of chill the adoption of criminal monitoring, healthcare monitoring, motor vehicle record monitoring, uh, financial license monitoring. I think those are really different things and they have a lot more utility to organizations. And, and I and I think um, are a lot more salient than, hey, what did you do to that stop sign over the weekend, you know, while you were yeah. with your buddies? Um, you know, you, you talked about identity for a second. And if we compare that to monitoring, you know, starting and monitoring has been around, we used to call it, um, uh, you know, it, it's been around for 20 years. It, there, yeah. it, it, it's just a different name every couple of years, right? Um, <clears throat> identity, though, I, I'm very complimentary toward the larger companies in our space, because while monitoring, I think, is provider driven, it's supply chain driven. Hey, we have this new product. Are you guys interested? Uh, identity really seems to be um, you, you know, a torch that's been picked up by the largest companies in our space, really leveraging the fact that, hey, you know, we're in a more gig environment, we're in a more remote environment. If I can't see you, touch you, hear you, feel you during the interview process, how do I know who the heck you are? Um, and, and, and identity is one of those ways that closes kind of a loophole in our space. Mm -hmm. Totally. And it, it's also kicking off the process. Um, you know, identity is kind of becoming the first step of the background screen um, and, and, and kicking off the entire screening, you know, workflow, which is yeah. cool. And, and, and I think one of the limitations to, to um, identity is, is, is really the, the significant increase in, in technology. Um, 10, 12 years ago, you just really couldn't do it. You know, the facial recognition software, you, just, you know, the, the, the driver's license, like you just couldn't do it as well. But now, you know, we talk about inflection points. It's kind of like the technology and, and the demand combined with the marketing muscle of larger companies in our space have, have really propelled identity forward. Um, and while we look at the mid-sized market and, and under, I don't really see anybody hammering identity as a core product offering. I imagine 12 months from now, when we're doing this exact same podcast again, we're probably going to feel a little differently about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. Um, one of the things that um, uh, new products we haven't mentioned yet, some of the alternate verification methods um, you want to, you want to, um, share some thoughts on that, Jason? Yeah. I mean, people are just sick and tired of Equifax. I mean, it's, it's, it, they're doing another price increase again, um, right now. And it's just becoming cost prohibitive for, for, for employers to do verification work now. Um, I don't know what the tipping point is. I thought last year was the tipping point where screening companies would start saying, forget it. We're not doing verifications for most of our clients anymore. Um, but there's going to be a number that it hits that that's going to happen. Uh, we are seeing a lot of them, lots of, I'm seeing lots of CRAs at least that are, have decided to look at these alternative methods like, like Truve or TrueWork or stuff like, stuff like that in order to verify um, employment differently. Um, but we're also, also seeing some innovation. Uh, there's going to be a company next year launching a brand new way to even verify that somebody work, worked at a company that's not being done today. Can, uh, at can, least no, nobody that know of. Can you explain the model of the the true uh, the true the true works the Argyles and and how that kind of compares, Jason? For those that might yeah, so, not be familiar you know, with it, 
I don't remember what the exact statistic is, but 75% of people in the United, or something like 75% of the people in the United States are paid through a third-party payroll company. Uh, it might be more closer to 90%, actually. Like 90% of people are paid through a third-party payroll company. And I think like a huge portion of that are covered by like two or three of the biggest payroll companies like Paychex and AEP. Well, you as, you know, I worked at Sterling after we sold our business and we used ADP there. I still have the ability um, as a once employee to access my W-2 records from ADP for as long as I want to. So I can go into, you know, basically what will happen with Truve is as an applicant, I'll get, uh, I'll get the you know, for information to fill out and it'll identify that I once worked at Sterling and they'll say, hey, ADP is Sterling's payroll provider. If you log into your, and it's all, it's all automated. I'm, I'm, I'm making it more complicated than it, than it is when you're doing it, but it'll come up and say that Sterling uses ADP. It'll take you to the ADP page. It'll help you recover your password. Uh, and then it'll go into ADP and it'll, it'll pull out all of your validated W2 information to ver verify that you did in fact work there. Um, and then the Truve system kind of pulls that information out and, and, and validates it and puts it into the system. So it avoids having to make any phone calls. It avoids having to use the work number. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's consumer per, uh, permission data. So it allows the consumer, the person, to show their validated credentials uh, to a third party. A, uh, a nice shout saying, out there. Oh, go ahead, go ahead. It, we're, we're seeing a lot of traction with this. Um, you know, I think, Truve is seeing like 35 to 40% completion. Um, you know, it's not, we, we knew going in, this wasn't a silver bullet. This isn't something that's going to take care of all your verifications, but it takes a huge chunk out of it. That's, that's a, that's a great point there. And, uh, you know, nice shout out to, uh, to paychecks. Uh, you mentioned from, uh, Penfield, New York, my hometown, um, <laughs> the, uh, you, you know, what's, what's really interesting. And here it is for the third time bifurcation in our, in our space. You know, years ago, did verifications one of two ways. You called, maybe email, whatever, but you know, it's the manual verification or you go to the work number. And some of these these alternate verification providers, like like you just said, Jason, not a silver bullet, doesn't necessarily have the data. You might not be able to get it. You might still have to go manual. You might still have to go through the work number, but it's a different option. Yep. Um, and, and and I think you, you kind of um, pretty eloquently establish the difference, right? You go through the payroll company or you go through, you know, the, the, the employer work number relationship. I am fascinated uh, I, not only about this topic and the adoption and the different products, but I'm fascinated um, about Equifax's strategy. I listen to their investor calls. I read all of their paperwork and, you know, they, they have, they have charted their course and they're creating new products, um, much like Samba Safety is doing with some of their driving products. You know, like we have the data and we're just creating different ways to create utility and value for you as the buyer. Equifax is doing that on, on their end. Um, and they got to know that as they raise prices, some people are going to bounce. But they got really smart people there with a lot of spreadsheets and calculators. If it yep. wasn't going to work for them, they wouldn't be doing it. Um, one one thing, by the way, as we talk about Equifax, and, and again, not that you know, it, it's not that we have uh, something we plan on talking about. Um, when there's mergers and acquisitions, right, things always shake out, right? You know, du duplicate roles, you don't need people. There's some layoffs; it gets a little messy post integration. Um, you know, Equifax, as it stands right now in our space, has kind of roll, you know has rolled up a couple different companies, 
right? Apris, Secure Tech, Innovative. Um, I think Equifax has done a phenomenal job retaining people from those three companies. They have. So that while you might not like Equifax and you might swear at them under your breath, over your breath, <laughs> in public and private, man, your friend that you've worked with for five years, 10 years at, at one of those three companies I just mentioned, they're still there. They're just wearing an Equifax golf shirt now at the trade yeah, show. That's a great point. I, I I never even really thought about it that way. And you're right. I mean, there's people that have been trying to pull out of there forever and I can't yeah. get them to leave. <laughs> so. And, and, and I, I tell you what, whether it was intentional or, or just it just happenstance, probably more intentional and happenstance, man, a lot of people that we really, really like in our space are wearing that golf shirt. And it's a lot harder. Yep. It's a lot harder to fire your friends. Yep. Um, you know, just, just for that. So um, let's do a couple more things real, real quick. And then, uh, and, and then we'll, we'll wrap up here. Um, any, any winners, winners or losers in the space? Maybe, maybe not specific companies, but, but types of companies um, in our industry over the last year, Jason? I mean, I, I continue to really love and admire what Accurate Background has been doing. They've, they've made some great hires this year. They've got really solid people running business development and, and sales. Dan Shoemaker has been a friend of mine for 20 plus years. The guy's awesome. Um, you know, and he, and he's, he's pretty much in charge of revenue there now. Um, I, I, I really admire what they're doing. Um, I also really admire what Sterling's doing. Um, Sterling has completely changed, uh, changed themselves around. They've got a much better reputation right now. Um, I've talked to many of their, their end users um, who have been very, very happy with them. So I think uh, the new leadership there really re-energized the offering that they have, uh, and they continue to innovate, which I also love. Um, yeah, those... Go ahead. So that, that those are the those are the two probably you know biggest winners that come to mind. I, I really enjoy watching certain uh, they're making they're making some waves or they're 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 definitely expanding. Orange Tree um, making tons of acquisitions. They've made three this year, I think, which is pretty awesome. Um, and then, uh, you know, on some of the smaller companies, I, you know, I'm, I'm mentioning people that come to mind cause they're friends, but I, I, have always loved what, what Tammy and the, and the folks over at, uh, Infomart do. Um, they're really putting some thought leadership out there. Um, and, and I admire that a lot as well. Yeah. A, a few that come to mind, maybe not specific companies, but attributes, um, the, the large companies, yeah, certainly the publicly traded ones, uh, their revenue, uh, all three of them, Sterling high rate first advantage have downgraded their earnings guidance and their revenue projections. Uh, I think based upon, um, uh, projected economic conditions, which we talked about a little bit in the podcast, um, their stock price has gotten hammered in the, in the, in the last two months, either because of that, or just, you know, investor opinion on what the future looks like. I'm not a financial analyst, so I can't speak as eloquently as to why the stock price for those three companies has dropped, you know, 30 to 50% over the last couple months. Um, but it's weird that I stand here because I say here, I say all those things, but I still think they're winners. I still think yeah. they're winners because they have the marketing muscle, they have the technology, they have the teams. And while on a, on a micro level, clients, you know, sometimes you call 1-800-STERLING and that's your support example or 1-800-HIRE-RIGHT and you might not like that relationship. You go to a smaller company because of it. On, on the macro level, um, I, I'm, I'm pretty impressed with what they're doing. And the reason I talk about that is in contrast, and you and I have had conversations about this. We've talked about this on LinkedIn. We're getting great traction on our, our, our posts on these topics. But um, 
I, I, I complement the larger companies in our space in contrast to the smaller companies. Um, the large companies are trying things. They're innovating. They're coming out with new products. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, we always say that we don't judge companies for how they want to build their empire, right? You can have a $3 million business and it's throwing off the cash you want. And it's exactly the life you want. And that's totally fine. Um, but we it's talked a, it's to smaller hard to say companies. With, with, yeah, go ahead. I would say it's, you know, stock prices are really difficult to uh, predict what a company is and how they're doing. Um, you know, if you look at a company like GE, you know, their stock is down like 90% over the last three years. They they still have their engines on like seventy percent of the airplanes that are yeah, in the world, yeah, and they yeah. still power like ninety percent of the households in the world. Doesn't mean they're a bad company. It just means that they're not growing as fast as they used to. Um, so it just I think stock prices are are kind of a weird indicator. Yeah, exa exactly. Industry. You know, it's it, it's it's something it's something we notice. But you know, would would I rather kind of be in their shoes? Um, knowing the initiatives, the technology, the things that they kind of have teed up. Or you know a smaller company with some of the the, the technology, the platform weaknesses that, that that we've talked about that worry us. And to to my point a second ago, if you're a smaller company and you are absolutely firing on all cylinders and you have everything that you want and your profits and your costs are in line and you just don't want to be more, that is totally fine. There is no law that says you need to double, triple in size. You know, double, triple the size sometimes comes with double the triple the headaches. But we don't always talk with smaller companies that are in love with where they're at. We talk with a lot of companies that are like, well, you know, and, and, and maybe that's by definition, the phone calls that we get. But a lot of companies are kind of struggling and they haven't tried anything new. And they're not really interested in trying anything new, but they want new outcomes. And that's that that's a hard company to work with. Right, Jason? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's just like I, I like I don't I don't know what the future is. For for organizations that are that are unwilling to kind of step out of their comfort zone a little bit, so that's who I worry about as we think of 2023. It's the, you know, it's it's the couple hundred companies, the smaller side of the market, and like what's what's their future look like if they're if they're not willing to do anything different? Yeah, yep. Um, quick, um, a quick hit on regulatory changes. We talked ahead of time, and I said, Jason, you see anything real big on the, you know, not so much the horizon, but over the last twelve months that, that really changed how we operate. And you said no. Yeah, it's really. And I no, said no. I mean, aside from California and Michigan and the date of birth thing, like, I mean, I I, I don't really follow compliance like I used to because it doesn't really play into my role anymore, except for the expert witness stuff that I do, and all that stuff is FCRA based, which doesn't change. So, you know, I, I don't. I I have seen stuff come out from PBSA. I, largely just ignore it because I don't really, you know, I don't really play in that world anymore. Yeah. Well, if, if it was of significance, we'd certainly be on it and we'd be, we'd sure. be talking about it. Um, and, and I guess the point with that is, you know, um, a lot of times we kind of look at whether, whether uh, government in Washington is unified or whether it is split. And for the mm -hmm. last two years, we've had democratic control. Um, so hypothetically kind of easier when one party controls, all, all branches. Um, and, and they did, but, you know, haven't, haven't seen anything really of significance that would, that would uh, change our space. Um, yep. Jason, I mentioned a minute ago, um, our recruiting efforts have, have ramped up. Uh, this is not a PSA guys, everyone listening, but you, you want to, you want to spend 60 seconds, Jason, on kind of just the virtue of, of outside recruiting when you build your teams. Yeah. I mean, I, I think a lot of, you'll see a lot of 
more successful companies embrace recruiting for the reason that they've been there before and and they've they've made all those mistakes um you know to me success in business is a lot of also a lot about the failure you've the failures you've had in business and and how um you know how you've taken that failure and learned from it and pivoted or do, do the things that you need to do so that's that's number one i think that um i went off on a tangent here and i kind of forgot the question um, no, it's okay. We're we're talking about the, the the virtue of recruiting. Yeah, I'm sorry. So with recruiting, it allows you to make still make mistakes, but make less of them. Um, you might have to, you know, pay a little more money to bring that person in, but when you bring somebody in that has been there, done that, and 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 comes from the industry and has probably made some of the mistakes you're act you're you're getting ready to make, it, it just puts more more value into those decisions. Um, so I I, I mean. We used recruiters a couple of times. I know Sterling always did when we were there. Um, a lot of the successful companies um, have, have been doing it. And, and, and the proof's in the pudding. I mean, I think like 95% of the people that I've placed over the last three or four years are still there. So, you know, th- there's a lot of value to that. Yeah, there's there's always kind of a natural hesitancy at the beginning. You know, when somebody calls me about recruiting, you know, I usually say, um, it, it's going to be three to six months before we do something um, because that that generally is kind of the, the sales cycle to become comfortable with recruiting, comfortable with, with writing a check to get somebody. Um, but there's a couple of distinctions that I think are really valuable. Like you said, Jason, one, it's, it's, it's just a tried and true method. It's an easier way to predict success. Second is last couple of years, we've just worked remotely. So we don't have to just go find people, you know, um, plus or minus 10 miles from Beachwood, Ohio anymore. Um, the world is just so much bigger and there's more options. We can leverage networks and our networks are bigger. Our networks are better. So that's really you know value that we love to love to add to an organization. Um, another, another thing, and we've talked about this before, Jason, um, which I'd, I'd love to share with the listeners, you know, probably the best way to describe the value of recruiting uh, is with salespeople. Um, the first, second, and third mistakes that organizations usually make when they hire salespeople is um, they they uh, they don't cut bait fast enough. You know, yep. it doesn't work. It's not your fault. It's not their fault. Let's hug it out. Let's part ways. What organizations do is they tend to bring in people that don't have the skill set required, and then wait too long, and all they do is burn their base salary. Um, I have a model that I that I show people when we talk about sales recruiting. If you bring in, you know, like, like a mid level salesperson, someone who's going to have a five hundred thousand dollar a year quota, and I know for smaller organizations listening to this, they're like five hundred thousand dollars a year is mid level. I'm telling you, yes, a mid level mm-hmm. salesperson should be able to sell five hundred thousand dollars a year. That that should create optimism for you in your business, not fear. You absolutely can find somebody who can sell half a million dollars a year for you. Um, but you know, I digress from from my point. You engage in a sales, you engage in a recruiting firm like us to hire a salesperson over a five year period. That person's going to generate millions and millions of dollars for you. Yep, you're going to pay about one half of one percent of that revenue generated in a recruiting fee. So I needed to tell that story to kind of build up to the fact that recruiting counterintuitively is one of the least expensive options that you can utilize to successfully build your business. Yep. Uh, final thoughts, Jason, as we look to wrap uh, this up. I'm, I, I'm excited about next year. I'm excited to see what happens in the M&A landscape. I know that there's, I'm excited to get some really great talent 
uh, in positions that they're going to uh, do great at. Um, so as we enter the, the next year, um, I'm excited for the future um, and I'm excited to see some of the things that have been kind of brewing start happening. Um, it's going to probably take a quarter or two to normalize, but you know, I'm, I'm excited. Can't say it any better. Thanks everybody who listened to this episode of Background Check Radio. Again, please follow, share, like anywhere you get your podcasts and more to come in 2023. Thanks everyone. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks.